It is by conviction that the elderly have much to teach us. I don't think that's a shocking statement, but why is the question? And it's because of experience, right? I mean, the Bible says in Proverbs 20, it's a fun proverb, it says that the the glory of young men is their strength. So, you know, back-breaking labor, that belongs to the young folk. Build bridges, dig ditches, you know, do these amazing things, spell out your life. But it says that the glory of the elderly is their experience. Actually, the proverb actually says it really cool. It says uh, the splendor of old men is their gray hair. But I, I kind of think, well, I know the thought, but some of us don't have much hair. <laughs> right? It's it's not that as we age, men and women, we get smarter. It's that we have lived. There's something there that younger people don't have, and it's years of living. So when people ask me about university experience, for example, I, I, I usually start or I'll mention this man named Paul Volcker. He was a giant of a man and he was older, but, but he came back and taught a class that I got to be in a small class. And we all gathered around and we wanted to listen and hang on his every word because the guy had been the chairman of the Federal Reserve. I, he wasn't like that he was super smart. He was smart, but I wanted to know what was it like to do that? What was it like to, to play with the money supply and interest rate and, you know, all of us young economic, economic minded people. Or when I was with my parents in, in Africa, and one of the best memories I have is sitting down with the father of, of one of the pastors there named Daniel Delma. And his face was all wrinkled and old and, you know, they didn't, they didn't have electricity or anything, but he, he talked about, and I, I wrote down, I think I even have recordings somewhere, of him talking about the first missionaries that came to Burkina Faso. The experience of that when the gospel first came to this pagan culture where no one knew Jesus or even heard of him. So cool, he'd experienced that. Wanted to hear the stories and you know, I could learn about equations and philosophies and stuff like that from textbooks, but experience, it's valuable. So I want to introduce you to an old man today. We're starting a new book. It's First John. This man is special, not only because he's old at the time that he wrote, but age is important. But because of the experience he had that will convey in his words to us over the next few weeks, I, I, I just, uh, today, I, we cannot forget who he is and where he's speaking from, and his name is John. Right? We're going to consider the letter that he wrote in our Bible called First John. So if you want to turn there, it's towards the very end of your Bible. First John, it's right after the two letters from Peter. And it's the first letter of John. You know, he wrote five books of the five part portions of the New Testament. Two of them are super short, second and third John. He wrote the Gospel of John. He wrote first John, second John, third John. And then he wrote the book we call Revelation, the last book of the Bible. And who he is has a direct impact on how we understand, how we listen, what we hear what we learn from this book. So I want to tell you a little about his life because sometimes we hear these, oh yeah, he was an apostle. And you don't 
you don't hear the flavor that lets us understand his experience. So when you walk with me, you realize that John was born in a fisherman's family. That's what he did, and it looks like what his family did. He fished himself in Israel on the Sea of Galilee, and he and his brother, at the time that he lived, had a cousin named John the Baptist, who started off, that man started drawing crowds, and so they went and followed him and listened to him and said, my cousin's kind of cool, and he teaches this great message, and he's kind of this amazing prophet guy that dresses in skins and eats bugs. But then they saw that cousin point to somebody else. Say, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And he said that, John Baptist did, and pointed to another one of his cousins, this guy named Jesus. And so he went, him and another, they went to go check out this Jesus, and they became the first two recorded disciples, followers of Jesus, that's recorded in the Bible. He wasn't the first, you know. John, if it's really interesting, and you can go through and check this out for yourself, he's never listed first in any of the listings of the disciples. That's Peter. Peter's always first, you know. Even even when Peter's not around, he's always mentioned after his brother James. It's always James and John. He's like the sidekick. He's in the background. If he's mentioned particularly, then usually he's mentioned in a somewhat negative way. Hard to say that. I mean, this is John. I, I revere John. But again, you got to get the flavor of who he is, right? So he's mentioned there when Jesus kind of rebukes him about him and his brother being ambitious. You want to sit on my right and left hand? Are you crazy? What kind of, what kind of prideful person are you? That's kind of the short summary. <laughs> or, or, or he's mentioned kind of like he's kind of intolerant, like in John 9, or I actually think it's Luke 9, when, when, when he wants to, to rain down fire from heaven on the whole town of Samaritans there. Jesus, kill them all. Him and his brother were called the sons of thunder, and it's, we don't know if it's because they had a really bad temper or if it was kind of like this jokey thing. Like they were full of hot air. We don't know. In fact, the only reference he makes to himself in, in the, he wrote one of the gospels, you know. He, he doesn't ever promote his love for Jesus. He identifies himself, especially at the end, several times in a particular way. He's the disciple that loved Jesus. No. He's the one that Jesus Loved. That's his identity, right? Jesus loved me. Would you try that on for me for a minute today? Say it with me. Jesus loves me. Jesus loves me. That's the identity that John wants to have. I know this. Jesus loves me. <laughs> not, not I love Jesus. So he became, John did, right? One of this inner circle. And not because he was really amazingly smart, but he was just there. He was there when Jesus talked with Moses and Elijah on the mountain and glowed. Kind of especially there, him and Peter. and Him and Peter were especially there when Jesus was crying tears of blood in Gethsemane. 
He was particularly there with Peter and James when Jesus raised the daughter of Jairus from the dead. At every major event recorded in the Gospels, this man was there. He's recorded as leaning on Jesus' chest at the the Last Supper in John 13. I mean, think on that. He's got his head on the chest of the Son of God. He entered into the high priest's residence when Jesus was on trial, and he got Peter in too somehow. We don't even know how. He alone, of all the disciples, is with the women at the foot of the cross when Jesus is dying. And Jesus looks at him, remember? And he tells John, take care of Mary. Kind of makes sense when you think that actually Mary is John's aunt, according to how we think about the relationships that we know. He was with Peter. Oh, this is the first time he's first. The first time John was first recorded recorded there was when they were racing to go look for Jesus in the tomb. It says John outran him and got there first. (laughs) Finally, I'm first. Empty tomb. No Jesus. But he was there. He was in the upper room in Acts when Jesus appeared after he rose from the dead. So here's the thing. Here's the thing. You say, yeah, I get it, Dax. John, wow. How cool he was there. That was 50 or 60 years ago from when we're reading this letter. That was when John, John was maybe the youngest of the disciples. We don't know, but we guess that he was a a younger man. And now he's old. Not just the oldest. He's the only. All the others have died, right? James, James died 30 years ago, martyred. And one by one, church history tells us, the disciples all go down, the apostles all go down, until there's one left. And his name is John. Several of the major church leaders, the fathers that we know in the generation after, guys named Polycarp and Ignatius, these names that if you're a true student of church history, you know them, they were all disciples of John because John was the guy who was around. Church tradition has him living in Ephesus, you know, up until he was banished to that Greek island that everybody knows because of Revelation, Patmos. But but what you don't know about church history, don't know that it's right or not, but Tertullian, one of the fathers he wrote, he said, you know, how he got there was he went to Rome, and they put him in hot oil. And when they put him in this vat of hot oil, nothing happened. They didn't know what to do. Everyone in the Colosseum started believing Jesus. And they said, we've got to get rid of this guy, and they stuck him on Patmos. Do I think that's true? I don't know. That's not the Bible. The youngest of the disciples, he survived them all like Jesus said he would. And before he died, he wrote this letter to the church. You know what? I want to hear it. I want to hear this old man, not because of his smarts, not because of his worked out theology, because of his experience with Jesus. 
He knew. He had full disclosure of who Jesus Christ is and that he is, was, and forever is real. So what he wants to tell us reverberates through our life by his wisdom, and that's what we're going to be the next, oh, it's a couple months it's going to take us to go through First John. And, and what I want you to walk away with today, we're just going to do the beginning, the opening, the first four verses, is an eagerness to hear from this man, an appreciation that Jesus Christ is real, he's tangible, and a deep understanding that our relationship, the relationship of this church is grounded on the real good news of Jesus Christ for you and for me. So look with me, will you? We'll just go real quickly this morning. But a tangible, eternal life that is real. This is from John. So we start the, the letter, and he writes this. That which was from the beginning, he writes in verse 1, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. Okay, this is a very unusual start. Let's pause there for a minute because, because, because he plunges us right in and says, hey, greetings from John, and I, I give you grace and peace, like all the Pauline letters that he does this. This he just jumps, and if anything, it sounds a lot like the gospel of John, right, that we read earlier. In the beginning was the word That which was from the beginning, the start of all authority, the start of everything. In the beginning, Jesus, with God, is God. I'm thinking of all those verses in the Gospel of John. But the emphasis for us is on this. John heard with his own ears, and he saw with his own eyes, and he touched him with his own hands. Jesus isn't an idea or a concept or a theory. He's a person. Alive and living and human, not only God, but he was there. And and so John says, hey, when I talk to you about who you should be, I'm speaking from my experience of touching and hearing and seeing Jesus. By the way, he doesn't say Jesus, does he? The word of life. The incredible reality we live in, you and I, is that God disclosed who he is. And he did that in Jesus. And the word that's used to disclose is the word called manifest. That's where he goes. The life was made manifest. And we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. (laughs) Look, says John. The word of life who is Jesus, he was revealed and we saw him. What what I do, says John, it's not not theory or ethics, it's testimony, it's proclamation. What do I proclaim? What do I bear witness to? Here, eternal life. You see, that's what he calls Jesus. He says, remarkable, huh? I proclaim to you the eternal life. Who's, okay, yeah, who? It says which, but you could say who. Why? Because he's a person. He was with the Father, and he was made manifest to us. He's talking about who? Jesus. Mind-blowing. This old man. What is he saying? He's saying Jesus Christ is eternal life. Trust him. And you know he was with Jesus. 
I know this is memory lane stuff we're doing today. But you got to think through what, what John has disclosed, what's been made manifest, what John is after. So come back with me. Remember for a minute the good news that John wrote about, and he wrote about years ago in his gospel. We don't have tons of time. But remember, right? Right? He wrote this book. I put the verse in your in your outline at the bottom. It says, But these things are written that you might believe, and believing have life in his name. Believing what? That Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He wrote these things, and really the manifestation of Jesus. He wants you to see Jesus and trust Jesus. And so he wrote this whole gospel, and, and it's a different gospel if you go back to the gospel of John, because it's not this chronological thing of, well, first Jesus was born, and then he went to high school, and then after high school he started doing this and his ministry. No, John gives you these seven signs. Remember them? Like how the disciples, when they started following, and John was right there with them, they went to this wedding, and and and, and Jesus... Jesus turned the water into wine. It was the best wine they'd ever tasted. New wine. To be put in new wineskins. We remember when, when the, the official came up to, to, to Jesus there in, in, in John chapter 4 and says, Oh, my son is dying. Please come with me. You have to come with me so he can be healed. And Jesus says, Oh, I, okay, he's healed already. By his word over distance. And the official goes back and, and his son is healed. Says, when did he get healed? Well, the very moment Jesus said he's healed. Who is standing there listening? John. The, the, the man there in, in, in John chapter five, when, when he, when for 38 years he'd been lying there paralyzed, hoping because once a year, every so often the pool of Bethesda would, would glimmer and they would think, oh, that's some spirit come to help. So if I could only get in there, I'd get healed. And Jesus comes walking up to him and says, forget the water. Stand up and walk. The guy stands up and walks. John watches him. The feeding of the multitude, remember that? The breaking of bread were just with two, a couple fish, a couple loaves, and 5,000 people are fed. And, and then you start to weave in, John does, these statements about what Jesus said, not just what he saw, but what he heard. That Jesus Christ said, I am the bread of life. If you eat of me, you'll never hunger again. Jesus walks on water. In John 6, Jesus heals a blind man. And and along this statement comes floating through, I am the light of the world. Jesus says, I am the door of the sheep. Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd. I'm for you. Chapter 11, the, the, the final mean sign there that Jesus does is raising Lazarus from the dead. And Jesus makes the statement, I am the resurrection and the life. Who's standing there watching? John is. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. And finally, the sign of signs that Jesus Christ is resurrected from the dead. And John sees it all. He heard Jesus' statements. He records them in John. Before Abraham was, I am, says Jesus Christ. So, so, so his testimony, right? I was there. I touched this Jesus. I saw him die horribly. I comforted his mother. My testimony isn't, isn't towards your moral behavior. My testimony is the truth of Jesus. I was there. This man, 
is eternal life. Will you trust him? And, and you lean in with me because, because I want to catch all these words of this old man because he's singly focused on this testimony that Jesus Christ was revealed and he's sharing it with us. This is real. And, and here's the tangible, real thing. This truth, the truth of Jesus Christ, the truth of Jesus Christ accepted, believed in, trusted. It means that there is real fellowship. Now, that may surprise you. It may not be where you thought we would go. But that's where John goes. It's not just about a tangible Jesus. It's a tangible fellowship. Look, look what he says. Verse 3. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. So there's a so what, right, that we're going to get to in this letter. There's a so what to this experience. It's not just, yeah, 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 Jesus is true. It's there's a so that. I'm telling you these things. I want you to know. So that you also may have fellowship with us, fellowship together. The Greek word's pretty well known in Christian circles. Koinonia. Right? So fellowship, it's, it's actually in Greek a favorite expression for the marital relationship. It's that kind of closeness. The closest relationship you can have between human beings, this common unity and connection, this close, close communion. Communion is a synonym. Closeness. I know, I know. I know we often don't feel those things towards each other. With good reason. But John is saying there's something here. I'm writing from my own experience, and it's around this acceptance of Jesus as eternal life. And what it does, this gospel, is that it creates, it results in closeness, fellowship, not just with people. He goes on, not just with people. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. You see, something's happened. Our communion, our closeness together, and and with the Father, you know, the maker of the universe, and with His Son, our Savior and Lord, Jesus, Messiah. And, And my experience, says John, conveyed to you, creates this. Jesus is real. The proclamation is real. The fellowship is real. Even if you don't feel it. right? Notice he hasn't said anything about duty or action or establishment on your part. He's just pointing to this reality that simply exists because we all agree that Jesus Christ is real. This makes fellowship a thing. This makes communion a thing. This makes community a thing. It's not a mandate, but something, something that is. It's not required. It's something created. I can just imagine, can't you? John had a crinkly face and writing this, and, and he's smiling. It makes his joy complete. And the many years and experiences he's had, and the depths he's seen, the incredible truth he's lived to testify to that those who would receive the word of life, the eternal life of trusting in this Savior, it's happened through him. So, 
you and I, we have life today and connection because of the word who is Jesus. And my, my word to you this morning is this introductory that you might understand our writer is that this simply is. That's the point. It's not dependent on anything else. It's not dependent or based on social status or serious study or on looks or on money or, or sort of depend on how kind I am to you or how kind you are to me. But from the pen of an old man, I pray that you will see that we are a community of grace who came and found us this Jesus. We found a treasure. We believe this old man. And John's passion is to ground us here, to make sure we have our theology where it should be before we continue in, because we're going to continue in, in the daily living that comes out of this community that God has made. Whatever else we might choose to do, remember what is. Okay, so buckle in, look around, go ahead, see how imperfect the church is, how imperfect we are, but realize that this church isn't built on perfect people or good deeds or pet projects. It's a fellowship created by God, by by those in those who trust in Jesus Christ. I look forward to see how John will shape our fellowship in the weeks to come. That's our introduction. Come back. We'll dive in to verse 5 next week. Would you bow with me? Let's pray.